so many things that you have done for us, even just since we awoke this morning. And we want to pause and give you praise and honor. And Jesus, I ask that you would help everyone in this room this morning uh, to move along in their walk of faith, whatever that looks like. God, wherever they are in believing, in believing you and who you are and what you've done for them, I pray that you would take us all another step further in our faith, another step in believing, another step in loving you, another step in living for you. And so come and do that, I pray. As we, as we look into your word, we, we thank you for giving us rock-solid proof of who you are so that we're not guessing this morning who God is. We're not guessing this morning what's going to happen when we die. We're not guessing whether there's an eternity or not. Thank you for your word so that we know for a fact what's going to happen. And I just pray this morning we play a part in all of our lives in preparing us for that. And so come, Holy Spirit, uh, manifest your presence in our hearts this morning and move us along in our faith, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 17 this morning. If you're using one of the uh, uh, Bibles that you have on the rows with you, you are on page 926. We're on page 926. So page 926. Kate is going to read to us, beginning in verse 22. Beginning in verse 22, Kate's going to come and read. And I just want to set this up by letting you know this is a sermon. So this is Paul preaching a sermon. So I'm going to preach a sermon to you that Paul already preached. It's a repeat sermon. I'm doing it the second time around. I'm just going to tease it out a little more. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. So Kate, come on up and read for us. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods to the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for... In him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of the imagination of man. The times of the ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. 
among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Check out the three categories of people that arise at the end of Paul's sermon. Look at verses 33, 32 to 34. You'll see three different groups of people. You've got the believers, you've got the mockers, and you've got those who have more questions. And isn't that how most of us respond? One of those three ways, whether it's to social media or something we see on the news, right? Either we mock it, especially if you're from New Jersey like I am. That's knee-jerk reaction. Mock it. Or you believe it, or you go, hmm, I've got some questions about that. Well, Paul here is going to do that. He's going to say some things that stir or elicit that same kind of response. Only what he brings up has nothing to do with the media or the news or politics. What he has to bring up is Jesus and eternity. So a little more weighty topics than politics or the news. And as he wraps up preaching to this large crowd, it seems to be divided into three groups. The mockers, the believers, and those who want to know more. I wonder this morning where you fit in those three categories when it comes to Jesus or the Bible or church or Christianity. I wonder if you are either a mocker or a believer or if you want to know more. Well, no matter where you identify, whichever one of those three, you need to know that we are glad you are here this morning. And even if you're a mocker, we're glad that you're here this morning. And do you know why? Because I was once a mocker too. In fact, everyone was once a mocker. We mocked God by the things we said, by the things we loved, by the things we did. We have all been mockers. So my prayer this morning is that God would just move us all along in our faith. If you're a mocker this morning, I pray you'd leave her going, hmm, I think I want to know a little more. And if you've been exploring Christianity and wanting to know a little more, I pray this morning you move into the believing category. And if you're already believing, I pray this morning God just arouses your faith and your belief. I pray you believe deeper. I pray that your faith is excited more this morning than it's ever been before. And I think that's what Paul's aim is in this sermon, is just to move everybody along from wherever you are in your faith from one point to the next. And so what does Paul do here? is he gives us sort of an overview of the world, of history, and of what every person needs to know in order to find lasting joy, hope, purpose, and identity. It's like, look, these are things every human being needs to know and embrace. And so he walks us through them. These are basically truths about God. And I'm telling you, again, I test drove these truths this week. And as I did... I found all kinds of change going on in my heart, all kinds of happiness coming in, all kinds of peace coming in. So it works. And not just because I'm telling you it works, it works because it's God's words. So I'm going to repeat to you now, back to you, what Paul says to these people to build your faith this morning and to move you along in your journey. So here's truth number one. The first thing he says about God is this, that God created the heavens and the earth. God created heaven and earth. Earth. We see that in verse 24. I'm going to take you back places, so if you want to keep your Bible open. In verse 24, he simply begins with this. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. See, God made the earth. The playground or the art show that we call earth 
was skillfully crafted by God. The question is, do we slow down enough to enjoy it? I mean, spring is here. Spring is beautiful, breathtaking. Spring is complex. It really is like living and moving art. So may I suggest, if you haven't yet, to go outside, take your face out of your phone, and take in the spectacle. The grass and the trees are getting greener and greener. The flowers in hundreds of different shapes and sizes and colors and smells are popping out everywhere. And the birds and the bunnies are doing the things that birds and bunnies do in the spring. (laughs) It's crazy to go outside and just watch what God is doing with his creation. And think about it. Spring arrives every year. Almost as if someone hung our little earth in space. So at the same time, at the same way, there would be this transforming effect year after year so that we would stop and go, hmm, I think somebody's behind all of this. And maybe it's God. And so he's the creator of it all. That has to be a foundation in our souls. And then he tells us that not only did he create it all, but that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. In verse 24, it says, Lord. Lord means he owns it. He he rules it. It's his. To be Lord means no one. He answers to no one. He's the top dog. He's the creator, the founder, the president, the CEO, and he is the head of all human resources. It's his. He owns it. There's no competition. He's the top dog calling the shots. So God really is the master and owner of everything. From the little ant that's running around in the grass over here to the galaxies that we have yet to find. He created it all and he is Lord over it all. And this God is not containable. He can't be managed by human hands. If you catch what the end of verse 24 says, it says, being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Now, I'm guessing most of us in this room don't think that God lives in this building or in a mosque or in a temple of some kind. But at the same time, I think we try to get God to fit into some sort of a system or a box that we often feel comfortable with. And I think Paul wants us to know that we can't contain or mold God into a God that we personally want to live with. If you look at verse 29, verse 29 is is just a combination of fascinating and funny to me. Verse 29, he says, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. (laughs) In other words, don't try to rethink God with your own imagination, with with your artistic abilities. And we often try to do that. We, we want to deconstruct God so we can reconstruct him into a God that shares our opinions. We try to ignore God and explain him away. We'll replace him by valuing his gifts above him. And yet Paul knows that he cannot be contained, contained or shaped. He is not movable. He is not adjustable. And he's never going to change. So we can't reinvent him into something that fits our preferences. Listen, God is incomprehensible. He is amazing. He is beautiful, powerful, gracious, good, loving. He is the immovable rock that this book describes him to be. 
And there's no reinventing him. You can't remold him into something that you want or that you think is better. And because he is fabulous and Lord over everything, King of kings and Lord of lords, he needs nothing from you. That's what Paul says next. Look at verse 25. He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. I love that. If you're, if you're like me and you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you can get this idea that somehow the world hinges on what I do. As if all of eternity is waiting for me to take the next move. So I love this. It's just a reality. He doesn't need you. He's been running the universe forever without you. And so he's not waiting right now, hoping that you will do a certain thing so that his plans don't get messed up. He doesn't need you this morning to validate his self-worth or his self-esteem based on what you think of him or what you did or did not say about him on Instagram or if you used his name as a swear word or not. He's not waiting for you to validate who he is. Listen, he is transcendent above creation. He is 100% satisfied with himself and he is oozing with more abundant joy, happiness, confidence, love, and creativity than our tiny minds could ever imagine. He's self-sufficient. And he's happy to be self-sufficient. Because God finds in God everything he needs to be satisfied and to find pleasure. He finds it in himself. So we can relax this morning. God's mental, emotional, and physical health is in no way lacking or deficient based on what you think or say about him. It, it's not. He is, he is confident within himself. So put all this together in your heads. You've got a God who created it all, a God who's Lord of it all, a God who can't be contained, and who doesn't need anything from us. Yet, look what he does in verse 25. It says he... He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. So he doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. But then he gives you everything you need because he's generous. Even though he needs nothing from you, he creates you and he gives you everything you need, including breath. So I was thinking about breathing this week. Did what anybody else would do. Google, Googled it. Tech, evidently, we breathe around 25,000 times a day. I won't tell you how old I am, but that means I've roughly breathed 494,250,000 breaths. And over 165 million of those breaths I did while I was sleeping which means I contributed nothing to my breathing. As you ate donuts outside today, none of you, don't tell me you did to prove me wrong somehow, none of you were chewing your donut and went, oh, I forgot to breathe. Oh, phew, okay, good. Take another bite. Oh, I got to breathe again. No, you've breathed hundreds of thousands of millions of times and not once have you ever given it one thought. You know why? Because God is keeping you alive. God is giving you life. God is giving you breath. 
And it says God is giving you everything else. So everything you have is from God. If you own it, use it, wear it, eat it, drink it, drive it, read it, flush it, hold it, push it, sleep on it or in it, it's from God. It's from him. It's from his hand because he's good and generous. So he's your creator and then he gives you everything you could ever want or you could need even down to the very last breath that you will take. And then it says that he made, verse 26, that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. You know what that means? That means before God put that first breath in your lungs when you were born, God already appointed that you would be in Mount Airy on what's today's date? April 9th, 2023, in this room, sitting in the chair you are sitting in, listening to this sermon. That's what that means. He allotted the times, he allotted the places, he is sovereign over your life. In short, that's what verse 26 is saying. He, he has his hand on you. And then in verse 26, it says, basically, he brought you here. You're here in this room this morning. You may think, oh, I got up and I came. You did, but someone prompted you. Someone guided you. Someone led you. And he did it for a purpose. Verse 27 makes the purpose clear. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So listen, God kept you breathing this morning and then God orchestrated your life so you would be here so you'd seek him, so that you'd come after him. God, God wants you to relate with him. He loves that. And he wants you to find your way to him. That is his purpose for you. He invites you this morning to come to him. And Paul makes it very clear that you can do that because he's actually not very far away. He's in this room. He's here right now with us. He's not far away. There's no playing hide and seek with God. He's not hiding and you seek him, then he goes another place. He's here. He wants your attention. He's saying, seek me and you'll find me. Come after me. I'm here for you. That's why I brought you here this morning. So you can interact with me, the living God, your creator, the one that gives you life and breath and everything else. He wants you to know him and love him, adore him, and to find everything in him that he created you to find and to not look in other places. So he's orchestrating this whole detail of getting you here this morning, giving you life, so you can enjoy life now the way God created humans to enjoy life on earth, and to prepare you for something, to prepare you for judgment day, to prepare you for judgment day. Look at verse 30. Look what he says. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to Repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So one day, God is going to judge the world in righteousness, and specifically 
The God-man Jesus is going to judge the world in righteousness. And listen, this is a good thing. If you have ever been outraged by injustices that have happened in your life or injustices that have happened in the world, you will know that on this day, all wrongs will be made right. God will judge. Jesus will judge in righteousness. There will be no loopholes, no twisted stories, no excuses. God will lay bare the secret things of men's heart down to the teeniest tiny details, and he will judge them. And God wants to prepare you for that. And so what do you do? What what do we do? How do we prepare for that day? Well, verse 30 tells us very clearly how to prepare for that day. It says, but now he, God, commands all people, not some, but all people everywhere, not just all people in some location, but all people in every location to repent. He says to repent. Repentance is a really a simple phrase. It means you're, you're, you're walking in a direction. You're, you're, your heart is in a direction. You're loving certain things. You're believing certain things. And then you do a complete 180. You turn around and you start believing and thinking and loving something different. And so all of us, at some point in your life, believed things and loved things that did not please God or honor God. And you were walking in that direction, believing this is my God and this will satisfy and this will take care of me. And one day, God, from some of us in this room, he woke us and said, whoa, that, that's not right. Only God is worthy of that kind of love and affection and attention. And we turned, we left those things behind and we said, I want God more than anything. I need Jesus more than anything. He is my life. He's my breath. He's my everything. And we turned to Christ. We went from pursuing sin in our own ways to pursuing God. We repented. And and listen, repentance is really more about not adopting a new way of living as much as it's about your heart. It's about a new way of loving. It's what we love with our lives. Repentance really is about you wanting everything in your heart and in your world to fall into the place God designed it to fall. And God's design for humans is that everything in our hearts would revolve around Jesus Christ. That's it. That we would be fascinated with him. That he would be at the center of everything that we live for. It's about seeing everything in relation and in proportion to Jesus and his all-satisfying beauty and magnificence. That's it. It's that he would capture your heart and your affections and your lives. And that's what God has brought us here for and keeps us alive for. It's about looking at all the things we currently love and cherish and value and crave and say, that might be good, but Jesus is everything. That may bring me joy, but ultimately it's just meant for me to enjoy Jesus more. Now, how did I make the jump to Jesus? (laughs) in the passage. Well, I'm concluding that this is all about Jesus because of what divided the crowd. What pissed the crowd off in this setting? Well, it wasn't that God created the heavens and the earth. They were okay with that. It was okay that God is not containable. It was okay that he determines our boundaries. It's even okay that he's going to come just in judge and righteousness. What divided the crowd was one thing in verses 32, 31 and 32. One thing. Jesus 
and the empty tomb. That's what divided the crowd. They were good until then. Then they heard about Jesus and the resurrection, and they went, whoa! And they began to mock or go, hmm, I need more information, or I believe. Those were the reactions that took place in the hearts of the people. And you need to understand there is no other options, really. Either you're on a journey saying, I want to know more, or you're mocking, or you're there, you're believing. And I think it's crazy that the very thing that God did to give us assurance and validate everything Paul is talking about in the sermon is the very thing that divided the crowd, right? The assurance that we have that everything I just said to you, those are eight points are true, is that the tomb is empty. And that that's the very thing that got them all riled up. The very thing that was supposed to give them the assurance that they needed. And so the ninth thing, I guess you say, that Paul said to them was that Jesus was raised to give assurance to all the things that he had already preached. Look at verse 31 with me and look what he says. He says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that's Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's your assurance. It's that Jesus rose from the dead. They could handle the other things, but they couldn't handle that. And I think that's because this issue of the empty grave is the most important issue. And it's the most important issue because the role of Jesus that he will play on judgment day. That's why. Because if the tomb is empty, he can be the judge. If the tomb is not empty, then he's a man and he needs to be judged. So if he's going to judge in righteousness, he's got to be the God-man. And he has to conquer death on our behalf. So Jesus rises from the dead so that he can be your righteousness when he judges in righteousness. And he is able to be more than what you need on judgment day to just survive, but actually to rejoice on judgment day. See, Jesus rising from the dead packs a punch of truth. (laughs) It supports everything in scripture that we believe about Jesus. And one day he's going to come and he's going to judge and he's going to judge in righteousness. And you're going to need righteousness or you're in big trouble on that day. I want to try to illustrate this. Corbin, would you come up here? Adrian, can I get you to help me? I promise I won't make you say anything. I need you guys just to sit on these stools for me. You pick. Are you a righty or a lefty? I'm kidding. You're good. We are going to imagine this morning for a moment that Corby is a bad little sinner. (laughs) Just imagine that. And we're going to pretend, imagine this, that Adrian is Jesus. Imagine that. (laughs) So, Corby is representing all of us, everyone in this room. And all of us in this room don't have any righteousness on our own. And that's being represented in a dirty shirt. So, it's really, whew, yeah. So, there you go, dude. 
This represents all of our sin, all of our wickedness, all of our rebellion that we all walk around with every day. And one day, Jesus is going to judge us according to righteousness. He's looking for righteousness on Corby and on all of us. He's looking for righteousness. And you've got to remember, this isn't like school where 70% is good enough. God's standard, it's 100% righteousness. It's perfect, and he doesn't have it. When Jesus comes, Jesus, because he's God and man, he lives as a man, but he's also God, so he's perfectly righteous, which means he does everything perfectly. So everything God's word says that we are to do, Jesus does. Adrian does. And everything God's word says do not do, Adrian, Jesus, doesn't do. So he's perfect. He's righteous. And so we are in trouble. We need righteousness. He's got it. And Jesus is going to judge us for not having what he has. And so what does Jesus do on the cross? He says, I'm going to take all of your unrighteousness and I'm going to nail it to my body on the cross. And I'm going to wear it there. I'm going to take all of the wrath of God that you deserve for your rebellion against him, and I'm going to bear it on my body. And so you are in that moment forgiven. Corbin's forgiven. That's right. That's right. Good to feel forgiven. But God is going to judge. Jesus is going to judge in righteousness. You don't have it. He doesn't have the righteousness. He's forgiven, but he doesn't have the good stuff that God demands. So what does Jesus do? Adrian, you want to pretend you're Jesus and give him your... This is what Jesus does. He gives it to you so that you wear it. So that now when Jesus judges in righteousness, he looks and he goes, Wow! He looks perfect just like me. He has all of my righteousness. He never did anything that God said not to do, and he did everything that God does say to do. He's righteous. Then Jesus dies and goes into the grave and he conquers death to validate this, to give us assurance that this is true. And then he goes and sits on his throne in heaven to judge everyone based on, do you have all the righteousness or not? And listen to me. When you're there and you don't have his righteousness, you're going to be in big trouble. It's going to be terrifying. Revelation says that you're going to wish rocks would crush you rather than looking into the eyes of the risen lamb. You're going to need righteousness. And so, what does Paul preach to them? He preaches this to them now so they can escape righteous judgment later. Why am I preaching this message to you this morning? Because I want you to find righteousness now, so you'll have it later. I want you to find righteousness now, so you'll stop trying to be righteous now. Because trying to be righteous now stinks. Because you always come up short. Or you live self-righteously thinking you've arrived for some period of time until you fail, and then you live in despair. So I've got a solution. Or should I say, God has a solution. Clothe yourself in the righteousness of Christ, and you'll be good for today, and you'll be good for judgment day. 
So Paul says, repent. Don't be righteous on your own. Instead, turn to Christ and let him clothe you in his righteousness. Thank you. You guys can go back to your seats and take your clothes if you want. (laughs) So I simply want to ask you this this morning. Where are you? I mean, when, you, when you think about this and what Jesus has done, are you a mocker this morning? I, I pray that your heart may be shifted just a little bit this morning from mocker to wanting to know a little more. And if you've been around God's word for a while and you believe a little, I pray that maybe you're believing more this morning. And if you came here this morning a strong believer, I pray that your heart is thrilled with the reality that the tomb is empty and as a result, it validates the fact that you're righteous. You're righteous this morning. You cannot be any more righteous than you are right now if you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You can't, so enjoy it. So when we sing about the empty tomb in a minute, we're going to do that celebrating our righteousness. You're righteous this morning because Christ has imputed his righteousness to you in full so that you can be a forgiven and justified child of God. So let me pray and we're going to sing. Jesus, we thank you this morning for what you've done for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the forgiveness that is so sweet. Thank you that our sins are as far as the east is from the west. Thank you that our sins are at the bottom of the ocean. They're gone. And then thank you, Jesus, that you give us your perfection So that today, even though we don't live that way, you see us that way because of Christ. And so thank you. And Jesus, I pray that every person that can hear my voice would move along in their journey this morning. If they're a mocker, may they just at least have questions this morning. At least be curious more. At least want to know more. God, for those who have been exploring for a while, I pray that you'd give them saving faith right now that they would embrace the reality of what you've done for them. And God, I pray that you would establish those of us that have walked with you for a while and love you, that you would establish us more deeply in our faith, that our, our hearts would soar to heaven with joy and gratitude for who you are and what you've done for us. So thank you. Thank you, Spirit, for your activity in our lives. I thank you for bringing each person here, and I just pray that you would continue the work that you've started in them. Continue it, God, and move them along, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.